All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. <clears throat> so for those of you listening to this online, I don't have the microphone tonight, so if it's quiet, I apologize. All right, so lesson eight, I believe we're in, uh, discerning deceptive doctrines. This is part three of Catholics. So I think this is going to be the last one we're going to do on Catholics. Uh, so we went over the Roman Catholic claims of uh, authority in part one and then covered their view on justification in part two. The claim of authority is far and away the biggest obstacle to remove and witnessing to a Catholic. Everything rests on that claim. If you accept Roman Catholic authority, then you have to accept all the bad theology that they have packed on top of that. They come with it. Right? It's like a one by, by one, you get it all the rest of it with it. Uh, but if you reject that authority, you remove that pillar, then everything else falls away as well. So it's, it's really an all or nothing deal with Catholicism. Uh, and that, that's the thing that you need to remove. So and the unfortunate reality is Catholicism is a devious deception. Uh, unlike the JWs and the Mormons, uh, there actually is real overlap between us and them. They have like a biblical view of Jesus. They just do not have a biblical view of salvation and justification. Uh, their acceptance of Orthodox views on the Trinity as well. Uh, they accept those. Uh, that gives them a veneer of legitimacy that other groups just don't have. Uh, the sad reality is that Catholics do indeed labor under a works-based system for salvation, as we covered last week. Uh, they are definitely a group that needs to be witnessed to. So don't, don't think that they don't need to be witnessed to if you run into them in the workplace or in your homes or just wherever you see them. So uh, they, need, they need the gospel. Uh, it's a major disservice to these people that so many well-intentioned evangelicals consider them to be our fellow brothers in Christ when their false gospel places them well outside the bounds of true relationship with Christ and therefore salvation. Um, oh, as a side note, I didn't mention this last week, um, but I thought of it during after the class. Uh, did you ever thought about how so many members of the mafia are Catholic and how they think they can be in good standing? It's because of their weak view on justification. They can go out, commit murders, like sell drugs and do all those things. And then they just go to confession and they get forgiveness for their sins. Okay, and that's, that's why they can all be in good standing in the Catholic Church uh, and still be uh, crime bosses. So. Uh, they're good to go that way. So that's, they can't, you can't do that in being an evangelical. It's just not, unless you're in the progressive community, I guess. But talk about that next week. Uh, today we're going to cover topics that are not directly related to salvation. Uh, these are all issues that are of lesser importance than justification, but they're still red tag issues. All right. So we're going to, those are, oh, I forgot. Uh, that's my contact information in case some of you want to get a hold of me. I'm not going to say it out loud, so it's not on the internet forever, but <laughs> you can write it down uh, right there. That's my email and my phone number. Feel free to use either of them. Anybody need it? Or are we good? Snap a picture. You can ask me afterwards as well for it. Uh, so what are we going to cover today? Just three big topics. Uh, saints, veneration or worship. Uh, they say it's veneration, but I think it's clearly worship. Or we're going to look at that. 
We're going to talk about Mariology or uh, Mariolatry, <laughs> as I would want to call it. So, idolatry, Mary. Anyways, I thought it was clever. All right, the Mass. <laughs> Sacrificing Jesus again and again. So, that's they believe every time that they go to Mass that they are re-sacrificing Jesus. So, we'll talk about that again. And that's done through the Eucharist, which is a sacrament, <coughs> one of the seven sacraments. We call it communion. They call it Eucharist. Um, so this is what uh, the Catholic Catechism has to say about Catholic saints. Uh, it says, being more closely united to Christ, those who dwell in heaven fix the whole church more firmly in holiness. They do not cease to intercede with the Father for us as they proffer the merits which they acquired on earth through one mediator between God and men, Christ Jesus. So by their fraternal concern is our weakness greatly helped. Uh, so they, the teach of the saints are in heaven interceding for us. Uh, a saint is somebody, when, when the church calls somebody a saint, <clears throat> excuse me, they are saying that they are 100% sure that this person has made it into heaven. They're no longer in purgatory. There's a really long process that they go through to determine that. It usually takes years, decades, sometimes even centuries uh, before they can canonize somebody as a saint. Uh, I'm not going to cover all the details because it's too much into the weeds for the purpose of this class. Uh, but just know that it, it, there is a process for that. It involves miracles and stuff. Uh, and as you see right there, extra good works that they do, that they proffered the merits, right? that they merited extra grace that they didn't need, that's put into the treasury of merit so that other people can receive indulgences based on that to lessen their punishment in purgatory. And then uh, another quote here, this is from paragraph 962 of the Catechism. We believe in the communion of all the faithful of Christ, those who are pilgrims on earth, the dead who are being purified, and the blessed in heaven. Uh, so that's the people on earth who are believers, the people who are in purgatory, and then the people in heaven. They're the blessed ones. Uh, all together forming one church. And we believe that in this communion, the merciful love of God and his saints is always attentive to our prayers. Uh, so the saints are always listening to our prayers so we can pray to them. And they intercede for us, according to the Catholic Church. Uh, and then also, through sacred images of, Holy Mother, of the Holy Mother of God, so that's going to be Mary, of the angels and of the saints, we venerate the persons represented. So they say it's okay to pray to somebody through a painting or a sculpture or something like that. That's in the catechism. And they call it veneration. They don't call it worship. And they call Mary the mother of God, but we're going to get to that later. Uh, so we are instructed to pray to people, dead or alive. Like at least the Catholic Church instructs their members to do so. Uh, oh, sorry. Oh, so what the Bible says is that we are instructed to pray to people, oh. not to pray to people dead or alive. I missed a word there. That's what's confusing me. Uh, so nowhere in scripture are we ever told to pray to anybody other than God. No, nowhere else. Much less the dead people, nor do we have a, symbol, a single example of this occurring anywhere in scripture. Anywhere at all. Uh, they don't even have one in the Apocrypha uh, where somebody is praying to a dead person. 
they have one example in a book that's not scripture uh, of somebody praying for a dead person, which they use to justify for purgatory. Did you have a question? No? Okay, sorry. Thought you waved raised your hand. Uh, but they don't, there are no examples anywhere, even in these extra books that they have, of somebody praying to a person at all. Uh, they point to verses like 2 Corinthians 1.11, Ephesians 1.16, Philippians 1.19, 2 Timothy 1.3. Uh, these are all examples of somebody asking somebody else for prayer or somebody offering prayer for somebody else. And they say, it's no different. We're just, when we pray to a saint, we're just asking them to intercede for us for, before God. Uh, but it's, it's not the same thing, right? You're praying to somebody. It's, it's not the same thing for me to go, hey, Ray, I have an issue. Can you pray for me with this? Right? Because we're on the same plane of existence here. Somebody who has passed away, they're in heaven. They're somewhere else. Okay? Uh, we have no indication in Scripture that they can even hear us at all. Like, it doesn't say that they hear our prayers. It doesn't say that they're even aware of what's going on on the earth. Uh, we have saints in the book of Revelation who are in heaven that are asking God, how long, how much longer do we have to wait? And that's about all you have. It, we don't even know if they're watching what's going on in the earth. <clears throat> so it's just, there's just no, no, there's no reason for it at all uh, to do so. Uh, furthermore, oh, also... When I ask somebody to pray for me, I'm not praying to them, right? So I go to Pastor Joel, I don't light an incense, you know, and a candle and go into his office and say, and get on my knees, clasp my hands and say, Joel, I need you to pray for me for this issue, okay? Because prayer is inherently an act of worship. It's just inherent in what you're doing. It's not a conversation. It's, it's an act of you're, you're asking, a, you're petitioning a higher being, right? You're petitioning God. So it's, it's, it's just not there. Uh, we are told only to pray to God. Do not be anxious about anything. This is uh, from Philippians. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be known to God. It doesn't say, let your request be known to saints, to people who have passed away and gone to heaven. Uh, it just says to God. And, and furthermore, how do you know for certain what was in somebody's heart when they passed away? I mean, you can have very good confidence, right, in certain people when they pass away where they went, one way or the other, uh, based on how they live their lives. But ultimately, God is the one who knows what's in the person's heart. So you're praying to somebody who you don't know with 100% certainty that they're even a saint, right? Uh, so the Catholic Church wants to tell you that there's a difference between these two pictures. I don't see any difference at all. Okay, there's Pope Francis waving incense and offering prayers before a picture of a saint. And then there's just an, a, a photo, or I guess an artistic rendering of a pagan. I guess this is actually, I think, of the, of the Jews uh, worshiping the golden calf from Exodus, and they're just burning incense before it. I, I honestly, I don't see a difference between what they're doing. The Catholic Church wants to say that that's totally different, uh, but I, I don't see it. So, 
And I don't think anybody that's being reasonable about it, looking at it from the outside, would see that there's a difference either. So it is idol worship that they do, that they commit. Um, say, and, and by the way, think about this just logically. Uh, saints are people who are in heaven. They still have human limitations. When you die and you go to heaven, you don't become omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. You can't hear everything, see everything, and do everything. They still don't have any power to do anything, right? They don't have the ability to answer your prayer. The best that they can do is just go to God with it themselves. But you can do that yourself, right? Or ask somebody here on earth to do it for you. Uh, so, it, like, it's, I can't imagine a person sitting there in heaven listening to hundreds, if not thousands of people all talking to you in different languages all at the exact same time and how you're supposed to listen and then also intercede before God, okay? You don't get these super abilities uh, just by becoming a saint in heaven. Um, so they call it veneration, I just call it idol worship. Uh, so if I took your cell phone, right? If I just went over and took it right off the desk there and uh, you said, hey, you're stealing. And I said, no, I just borrowed it with no intention of returning it, all right? So I'm borrowing it from you permanently, okay? Uh, that's still stealing. Just because I call it by a different name doesn't make it not what it actually is. So it's, it's, not, it's not veneration, it's not, and to venerate, by the way, just means to highly honor or revere. Uh, so it's, there's a fine line that definitely gets crossed. <clears throat> uh, furthermore, we are prohibited from contacting the dead in every instance in scripture. There is no positive uh, incident anywhere in scripture where contacting the dead is a good, is a good thing. Uh, it's, it's all bad. Uh, this is a quote from Isaiah uh, 8, 19. It says, and this is God speaking. It says, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers, necromancers who chirp and mutter, shall not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Like he's saying, don't talk to dead people. Talk to your God. Okay, he's, he's pretty adamant about that. You also can see Leviticus 20, 27, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 13. Uh, consulting the dead was given the death penalty in the Old Testament. Uh, and they, they want to say it's different because they're not going through a medium. They're not going through somebody who's doing it on their behalf. They're just doing it directly themselves. I don't, so you've removed the middleman and you're just doing it yourself. Uh, well, the necromancer, the person who did it for you was also put to death under the law. So the person doing it and the person asking it to be done were all put to death. There is a principle there that you're not to contact dead. There's no point. And God says, contact me instead. And by the way, this whole process of praying to saints is just one additional way in which the Catholic Church places other people between you and God. They do that at every step of the way. They put something between you and God. When you don't, they're, they're, you don't need that barrier. You can go directly to God, right? You can pray with confidence. <clears throat> All right, so Hebrews 4.16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
you can go there yourself with confidence because you have been purified of your sins. Uh, remember that the Catholic view of justification is that there are sins that Jesus didn't pay for. They call these venial sins. Uh, those are ones you have to pay for yourself. So when you have venial sins that are in your way, you're not pure enough to talk to God. That's why they put all these people there that act as a barrier between you and God, because you're just not good enough uh, in their view, because you haven't been fully purified by the blood of Jesus. So Catholics rightly are fear Christ, right? Uh, they do so because they're not saved. They should fear him, uh, but, but they don't need to if they just put their faith in Christ. Uh, further on in Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, we can confidently approach the throne of God with prayer and ask things of him. We don't need a mediator. The curtain has been torn, our evil consciences have been cleaned, and our bodies have been washed. Okay, don't be afraid to pray to God either. Uh, you don't need to be. Uh, so James 5, uh, 16 through 18, it says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So he was a sinful man, just like every single one of us here. Uh, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again and the heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. So you, even though we have the same sinful nature uh, as Elijah, because we have the blood of Christ, he's died for us. God will listen to our prayers. All right. Uh, John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Okay, walk in righteousness, be with Christ. He will answer your prayers. You don't need to go through somebody else. Uh, going to somebody else in prayer is a good way to build fellowship with them. It builds trust and encourages your faith and their faith. It builds up the body to share one another's burdens. It's a good thing. You can't do that with a dead person. You, you're not establishing a relationship and building yourself up because it's, it's a one-way avenue, even if it is legitimate, which it's not. So there's, there's good things that come out from praying for one another, but not, not from doing so with the dead. All right, so yeah, who do we pray to? Jesus did not instruct us to pray to others, but to God. Okay, he didn't say, pray then like this, our Mary who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, okay? Or, or uh, our St. Augustine, who art in heaven, all right? It's our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's how he taught us to pray, to address God, all right? That's from Matthew 6, 9. Uh, and I already quoted this one. It's from Philippians 4, 6. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God, not to Mary, not to St. Athanasius or anybody else, but to God. Uh, the veneration of saints. So it is perfectly uh, reasonable and acceptable to respect those who've gone before us. Hebrews chapter 11 has a whole chapter about this, where it lists all the people and the great things that they did in faith. And it's, we, those are people that we should emulate. 
Uh, and we should consider the outcome of their faith, as it says in Hebrews 13, 7, and then do likewise. Okay, but we are never instructed to revere or even to venerate them. It's to look to their lives, consider the outcome of their, li- of their faith, and then do likewise. It's not to pray to them or treat them as if they were better people than us, because they weren't. Okay, we are also forbidden from bowing down to images or idols. That's a commandment. Right, very clear in the Old Testament. And actually, if you look at the Ten Commandments here, the Catholics removed one commandment. But they still have ten on there. Do you guys want to take a look and see what they did? Which commandment is missing from the Catholic version? The second one. Yeah, thou shalt not make graven images, nor bow down to them. They just completely removed it. So if you go to any Catholic church where they have the Ten Commandments displayed, in fact, my parents have, the, at least when I was growing up, had the Ten Commandments listed in our, hung up in our house uh, as Catholics. Second Commandment wasn't on there. They just removed it completely. It's ignored. It's a big block. It's actually the longest commandments in, in there, and they just completely removed it, and they took the Tenth Commandment and split it in two. So instead of having you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or property. It's you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Don't covet their property. Every, every Catholic church and every Catholic home you go to, that's the one they're going to see on the left. Okay. It's obvious what the motive was for doing this because they bow down to worship idols all the time and they don't want that hanging up in people's homes reminding them that they can't do it. And let's just take a quick look at the, dip, the real difference between uh, veneration and uh, uh, between true veneration and worship. So you have an example of, yes, familiar with the bronze serpent in Numbers chapter 21. The people were being bit by snakes and dying, and they called out to God for help. So God told Moses to make a serpent out of bronze and put it on a staff and lift it up. Everybody who looked to the staff would be healed. Everyone who refused to look to the staff died. Uh, John, uh, in John 3.14, references this incident, and he says that staff was meant to represent Jesus. So it's just a picture of looking to God uh, for, for help and for salvation. So the, there's, there's your item. It's a good thing. It's meant to be there. They kept it in the tabernacle uh, as a reminder of this, of this incident, so that they would be reminded that God healed them. He, he gave them away. He was merciful. It's a reminder of the mercy uh, of the mercy. But what happened over time is people forgot about that and they just began worshiping the snake, the bronze serpent, saying, "This is what healed us." Uh, so they they weren't looking through it to God. They knew that God had done it. Uh, they knew the story, but they weren't passing that worship through it and up to heaven. Okay, so King Hezekiah had to come and he broke it to pieces because they were burning incense to it. They were making offerings to it. So it can happen very easily, you can slide into it. Uh, an intercession in heaven. Okay, so that's one of the big things is that they say that, uh, that they intercede for us. But it doesn't ever say that, that the saints intercede for us when they're in heaven. Uh, but it does say that there are people in heaven who do intercede for us. Jesus is one of them. Uh, Romans 8.34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. 
more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And then Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So unlike people who have died, Jesus is God. He has all those qualities. He can listen to millions of prayers at the same time in multiple different languages and take those and bring them to the Father all at the same time because he's God and he can do that. Uh, People cannot. So you can rest assured that Jesus is interceding for you and that you can confidently approach him. He's the one who paid for the sins. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who died for you. Okay, He's the one who has made the efforts for you. Uh, There is very much a fear of Jesus in the Catholic mindset. uh, And there's even prayers that they have listed if you just go to like catholic.org where you can pray to Mary that she would deliver you from Jesus. That they just put out there for suggested prayers for people. Uh, and it's, they have, they, they think that Mary loves them more than Jesus does largely. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but, uh, but the Bible really says the opposite, right? There's a great love that and compassion that Jesus has for us. Uh, and you shouldn't be afraid of him if you believe in him and you put your faith in him. Otherwise you should fear him. Uh, the Holy Spirit also intercedes for us. Uh, in Romans 8.26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Uh, you know, I was actually told by a Catholic when I was in school uh, that <laughs> they were trying to convince me that about this. You need to pray to the saints. Uh, and the reason, one of the reasons why they gave was because sometimes we just don't know what to pray. And the saints are closer to God than us, and therefore they know better than us. And so you just ask them to pray for you, and they'll know better how to pray for you. But the scripture says that the Holy Spirit does that for us, not dead people, even good dead people. All right, so let's move more specific from saints to just one very specific person that they regard much higher than everybody else. And that, of course, is Mary. Uh, They regard Mary as the mother of God. I'm not going to read it to you there because we're getting short on time. But they think they call her very specifically the mother of God and the queen of heaven. Uh, She is not the mother of God. She is the mother of Jesus. She is called the Theotakos, which is two Greek words, means theos and tiktos which means God-bearer. So she bore God in her womb, but she did not birth God. She was created by God, okay? That's a very big difference. So the early church in their creeds never called her the mother of God. They called her the God-bearer. And that's a good, that's a really good term for it. Uh, Hold on. All right, so Mary's role in the church, according to the Catholics. Uh, Mary's role in the church is inseparable from, from her union with Christ and flows directly from it. And this is all directly from the catechism. Uh, this union of the mother with the son is the work of salvation. 
with the work in with the son in the work of salvation is made manifest from the time of Christ's vaginal conception up to his death. It is made manifest above all at the hour of his passion. Thus the blessed virgin advanced in her pilgrimage of faith and faithfully persevered in her union with the son under the cross. Therefore, there she stood in keeping with the divine plan, enduring with her only begotten son, the intensity of his suffering, joining herself with his sacrifice in her mother's heart and lovingly consenting to the immolation of this victim born of her. So they are saying that Mary was a part of the work of salvation. Uh, this next one is also about it. It says, taken up to heaven, she did not lay aside the saving office. So she has a saving office, according to the Catholic Church. But by her manifold intercession continues to bring us the gifts of eternal salvation. Salvation is given, is allocated to us through Mary's prayers. You have to go to Mary and ask her to have Jesus give you some grace, all right? Because he can get angry and, you know, she's his mom. So Jesus can say, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get you. Uh, and then she can say, no, Jesus, just calm down, honey. Okay. Uh, and then he said, oh, okay, okay. I'll give him some grace instead. Uh, so therefore the blessed virgin is invoked in the church until the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, and mediatrix. So that just means that's the female version of mediator is a mediatrix. So they consider her to be somebody who's joined with Christ in salvation, that her, that she was necessary to agree to it on the cross, right? She had to agree to it and consent to it, uh, and that she's a mediator with Christ. They call her the co-mediatrix. They're going to say that she's a lesser mediator than Jesus. They'll say that, but they don't really believe it. At least the vast majority of them don't understand that. So Mary is right up there with Christ in their minds. Uh, they also believe Mary was always a virgin. She never, uh, she never had any marital relations with uh, Joseph. So finally, the Immaculate Virgin, preserved free from all stain of original sin, when the course of her earthly life was flourished, was taken up bodily, uh, body and soul into heaven and exalted by the Lord as queen over all things. So she's the queen of everything, according to the Catholic uh, view. Uh, she was also the Immaculate Conception. You've probably heard that term. It does not refer to Jesus being born without sin. It refers to Mary. So Mary was the first person that ever lived a life without sin, not Jesus, in the Catholic view. She was always a virgin. She never sinned at all. So the original sin is what she was preserved from? She was preserved from all sin. So the sin, she did not inherit the sin nature from Adam that we all inherit. Is that related to being a virgin? Um, it's kind of. So they're saying when she was born, that the sin nature was not passed on to her, that God did a miracle and prevented the sin nature from going on to her. And that she never sinned at all by having any marital relations. So they having think- Correct. They say that that would have defiled her so that she never had so any relations. Well, that's where it's confusing because they're going to say that sex is fine in marriage, but then they want to say that it would have defiled Mary. So it's, it's a contradiction in their belief system. So, so they would also say she did not have any other children. Then. Correct. They so say that she had no children. 
Yeah, so we're going to talk about it in a little bit. Uh, they just say that the that you know, when it says that Jesus is brothers and sisters, they just say, oh, it doesn't mean brothers and sisters, it means cousins. Uh, even though that's just not there in the context. Like if you go back to Greek, you can use cousins, uh, the word for cousin, uh, for brothers for cousins. Uh, but it's usually there's context for it. Like, you know that they're a cousin, they're close because they live maybe in your same family. If you're living with your aunt and uncle, things like that. Uh, but it's not the normal. There is a word for cousin in Greek and it's not used. It's used of John the Baptist right, who's Jesus' cousin, it's not used of uh, his siblings, okay? <clears throat> yeah, so they, they want to say that if she had, had any relations with, her, with Joseph, even though they were duly married, that it was, that would have defiled her. Uh, and, and also, she just lived out her days, and then when God decided that it was enough for her to be on earth, he just took her up to heaven like Elijah, so that she never died. That's, and by the way, this, that's a new doctrine, kind of. It was not officially ratified into the Catholic uh, Church, the, their dogmas, until like 1952 or something like that. So it, that's actually relatively new. I mean, that, not that the people didn't believe it before that, but they didn't make it official until the 1950s. So that's in some people's lifetimes here. Uh, and even the, the idea of Mary being a virgin, uh, that was 1850s. So, like just before the Civil War, that was when they came out with that doctrine. So these are, these are new, that this has really developed over time. Uh, Mary, they link Mary, devotion to Mary, to worship of God. So this is right here from the Catechism, uh, paragraph 971. The church's devotion to the blessed virgin is intrinsic to Christian worship. And then they, I put an ellipsis there because then they say in a little bit, this very special devotion differs essentially from the adoration, which is given to the incarnate word and equally to the Father and the Holy Spirit and greatly fosters this adoration. Uh, so they, they, they say that uh, devotion to Mary is intrinsically linked to our worship, but it's not the same as worship to God. Okay, so and they even have words for it. They say that we give God latria, which is just Latin for worship, but we give Mary dulia, which is veneration. But I don't know. I don't, I don't see the difference. So how important was Mary really in the Bible? Uh, I want to be careful here. I have no intentions of bashing Mary and just ripping her to shreds and degrading her in any way. Okay, uh, not my intention. I'm just going to tell you the truth based on what I see in the Bible. She was a blessed woman. Absolutely. So after all, she's the only woman in all of history chosen by God to bear his son in her womb. That honor wasn't given to my mom, my wife, and it won't be given to my daughters. It wasn't given to any of you in here. Uh, she was the one that God chose. And it's not because, and I want to emphasize, that she, that she was chosen because she was better than everybody else. Okay, she's not a, a better woman than everybody in this room or my, than those in my own family, et cetera, or any other woman in history. Okay, it's just that God, in his sovereignty, just elects people to certain positions. He just chooses them because he, that's what he does. So this is uh, deeper theology. It's, this is from Romans chapter 9. Uh, this is just a principle that I'm trying to outline. It's not directly about Mary. It says, for this is what the promise said. 
about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, because of God, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So God just chooses people for salvation. He chooses people for specific roles. It has nothing to do with the person. It's just entirely based on God. So he, he's, he just chose her, and she's blessed for it. And I'm grateful for that. It's a blessing to all of us. So, uh, so that's Mary. But as we'll see, okay, she was a sinner in need of salvation, just like everybody else uh, is as well. All right. So what was her role in Jesus' ministry? Uh, we have an example from John chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Excuse, excuse me, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Mary makes a request of Jesus to do something about the fact that the wine had run out. Okay, this is probably an embarrassing thing. Okay, there's, it's probably their family member. Uh, they have all these people there. They're not wealthy. And now they've run out of wine. So she's like, Jesus, I need you to do something. Uh, and what was his response? He does not address her as mother. There is actually not one time in scripture anywhere that Jesus calls her mother. He always calls her a woman. And this is not an insult. It's not, he's not saying like woman, like get away. It's, it is, it's a courteous thing in their culture, like woman. Um, so he's being respectful, but he's creating distance between there. He's indicating that there is a change in their relationship. She can no longer tell him what to do. I mean, he was a really good son. He submitted himself to her. He probably, everything that she'd ever asked for him, that he just did up to this point. Now he's starting his ministry. And he's saying, this has nothing to do with me. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> so the phrase, what does this have to do to me? Do with me? It's another distancing. He was telling her that her concern about the wine was not the same as his concern. We are at completely two different points in our concern about the lack of the wine. Your concern is probably about the embarrassment of it. My concern is about the glory of God and, and increasing my own glory. So think about him saying this as saying uh, that the absence of the wine is really none of her business. He goes ahead with the miracle, not because she asked him to, or even for the reason that she was asking for it. He performed the miracle in order to manifest his glory. That's what it says in verse 11. So John 2, 11. That's it. So he basically told her no. So that's another, another uh, way in which uh, Catholics will try to appeal to you as they'll say, well, G Mary is Jesus's mom. So if you ask Mary for something and then Mary goes on your behalf, Jesus can't say no to his mom. Well, Jesus told her no, <laughs> okay, right here in the scripture. This is the only time actually Mary ever asked him of anything that we see in scripture. And he's saying, uh, I don't, I have nothing to do with this. Okay, I'm, I am doing my own work now. Okay, I'm about my father's business, uh, not about my mother's business. This is also isn't the only time that Mary distanced herself from Jesus, or sorry, Jesus distanced himself from Mary. 
Uh, we see in Mark 3, 20 through 21, and then skipping ahead to 31 to 35, it says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went up to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Okay, so his family is coming out saying, oh, no, 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 Jesus is crazy. Uh, and then skipping ahead, it says, and his mother and his brothers came standing outside and they sent to him and called him and a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Okay. Jesus was telling, her, telling them that the only relationships uh, that he has are those who do the will of his father. All his earthly relationships don't matter anymore. It's only the spiritual ones that matter. This was a public rebuke to Mary. Okay, so his family tried to stop Jesus from continuing his ministry and told people that he was out of his mind. Okay, take note that in between these two stories, so I didn't include it for space, but there's just a random interruption here in which Jesus has interaction with the Pharisees about blasphemy, blaspheming God, uh, and then it goes back to the story. So it's providing commentary that what Mary and his family is doing here, they're committing blasphemy against God. So it's, it's a sin recorded in the Bible that Mary did, and as well as his brothers and his sisters. Um, so by this point in time in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus had already declared, declared that he had the power to forgive sins and that he was the Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, he had already effectively declared himself to be God, and his family's response was to tell people that he was insane. So, and that's blasphemy. Okay, when Jesus says, I'm God, and you say, no, you're not, you're just crazy. I mean, that's, that's blasphemy. So, I mean, you know, if I stood up and said, I'm God, and you said, I'm crazy, you'd be right. Okay, but you can't say that to Jesus. Uh, and it was public, a public rebuke. Uh, and then also <clears throat> we see in Luke, uh, Luke 11, it says, as he said these things, that's Jesus uh, was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he's continually, every opportunity he's given to elevate Mary, he does the opposite. He distances himself from her. So it is not an exaggeration to say that Mary played absolutely no role whatsoever in the ministry of Jesus Christ or in the work of salvation, despite what the Catholic Church teaches. Uh, he distanced himself from her over and over again. And Mary accepted this, by the way. She didn't, uh, like, she was never shown to be bitter about it. Uh, she, uh, she's even said, said to say, do things like she pondered things in her heart. Uh, she's never angry with Jesus at any point in time. In fact, Jesus even makes arrangements for her to be taken care of after his death with John. So he passes her on to the, the disciple John. So it's not that there's a bad relationship between him and Mary. So I'm not trying to overemphasize it. It's more in his ministry, he distanced himself from her, but he still took care of her the entire time that he was on earth. And when he was passing away, when he was finally fulfilling the purpose of his life, he passes that responsibility on to somebody who's going to do it for him. So there's a positive relationship there. Mary's not bitter about it or anything like that. Okay. 
It's just she didn't play the role in the ministry that the Catholic Church claims. She was a good and godly woman, okay? All of us, and not just women, can look to her as a worthy model of faith alongside other great figures in the Bible, such as Abraham, Noah, and Moses, but we should not elevate her to the heights that the Catholic Church does. It's plain and simple. There's only one mediator uh, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. She's not a co-mediator. There's only one person. Mary is also never mentioned in any of the epistles at all or in the book of Revelation. She's only mentioned one time in the book of Acts and then never again for the rest of the New Testament. And it just says that she was praying with Jesus' brothers. Do you have something, Pastor Lang? Yeah, I was saying in the book of Acts, I think it is significant that she is specified as being one of the rules. Sure. And she, so she's absolutely involved in the covenant and she was a member of the church. Um, but she was not in any leadership role in the church. She was not exalted at the church. The fact that she's not mentioned, she's not working with the apostles, like she's not alongside Peter, who was called the first pope, you know, doing any ministry, you know? She's just said to be praying, and that's the last time you hear of her. You don't have any record of her death. That's, that's just it. So the, the point is, is, is that she's just not involved in the ministry. It's not that she's a bad person. Go ahead. I think their motivation was, is we don't want Jesus to get killed because the word was already spreading that the Pharisees didn't like what Jesus was doing. So he had a confrontation with them about whether he had the right to forgive sins or not. And that was a public rebuke to them. I'm going to heal them right in front of you. And they left and wanted to kill Jesus. So I think it's, hey, Jesus, you better calm down. Uh, you're going to get yourself killed. We love you. We don't want this to happen. Uh, so it wasn't like they were uh, negatively motivated, you know. So I think it was motivated by love, but it was just misplaced. So that's, that's, my, that's my read on it, at least. So. Uh, Mary worship. So tell me if you think this is worship or veneration. So here's just some examples. Pope John Paul said this about his death. So he knew he was dying, and he, he wrote this. He says, I do not know when it, referring to his death, will come, but like all else, this moment too, I place into the hands of the mother of my master, totus tuus, and that means totally yours. In the same eternal hands, I place all those with whom my life and vocation are bound, into these hands, I leave above all the church and also my nation and all humanity. So he dedicated his death and was submitting and trusting himself to Mary, not to Jesus, in the final moments of his life. That's scary. Uh, pope Benedict, this was the first thing that he, uh, the first statement that he made as Pope. It says, this is just right after uh, Pope John Paul passed away and he was selected. Uh, to support me in this promise, so things that he had said, this is how he ended his, his uh, comment. It says, I invoke the maternal intercession of most holy Mary in whose hands I place the present and the future of my person and the church. Like, I don't see how that's veneration. That's worship. You're treating her as if she's a god. And by the way, I mean, like the, the Quran, uh, this is a side note. They they refer to the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and Mary, because the people that he encountered, Muhammad or whoever wrote that, was 
obviously convinced by things, statements like this made by people that Mary was a god to them and member of the third member of the Trinity, not the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's been going on for a while. I mean, that's what, 7th century, 8th century, something like that. Uh, this is a prayer that I just pulled out. There's a whole bunch of prayers. I picked one out at random and threw it on here. It's on the catholic.org website. That's an official church or official website for the Catholic Church in, the, in America. So it's not some, you know, rando weird person that's running it. Okay. It's by, from the bishops. It says, Behold, O mother and perpetual help uh, at thy feet, a wretched sinner who has recourse to thee and trust in thee. O mother of mercy, have pity on me. I hear all men call thee the refuge and hope of sinners. Okay, so she's the one, not Jesus. Be therefore my refuge and my hope. Help me for the love of Jesus Christ. Hold out thy hand to a fallen wretch who commends himself to thee and dedicates himself to be thy servant forever. I mean, I'm not going to read it all for time's sake, but that's all about dedicating your life to Mary. That's worship. That's not veneration. That's not adoration. That's worship. You know, and, and for my day job, um, I'm a canvasser for politics, so don't hate me. <laughs> but, and I, I saw this, in, uh, this is, I, I've seen this on a few people's homes, and I took pic a picture of it at one home. This is a picture of Jesus and Mary with a crown between them, right? They co-rule heaven. Okay, she's the queen of heaven. She rules with Jesus. Uh, and it says on there in Latin, Cor Jesu, or it's, the heart of Jesus come, your kingdom come through Mary. Okay, and most blessed virgin whose heart is sorrowful and immaculate, we recognize thee as the lady and the queen of this house. Have the kindness to preserve it from every evil, from fire, water, thunderstorms, earthquakes, robbers, wicked people, revolutions, war, raids, etc. It's all a prayer to Mary to do things for you. She can't do that for you. All right? She can't. She's just a person. She doesn't have power. So Mary was a sinner. Uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That includes Mary. It does not exclude her. It does not say all have sinned except Mary. Everybody has sinned. All, uh, and death came to all men. That's also in Romans. Uh, so if Mary never sinned, it stands as reason that she wouldn't need a savior. Correct? She, could, she would never have any punishment to bear. She would just live forever. Uh, yet she said in Luke 147, my spirit rejoice, rejoices in God, my savior. She, she clearly expressed that she needed a savior herself. Uh, she was also recorded as giving a sin offering in Luke 22, 24, in accordance with the law. So she thought she was a sinner. And she made an offering for one. Uh, I think Mary would be horrified by what the Catholic Church does with her. So would all the saints. <clears throat> the perpetual virginity of Mary... Uh, last slide on Mary. I says, it, the Bible is pretty clear that she did have relations. All right, it's a little awkward talking about whether a woman who lived 2,000 years ago had sex or not, but that's, that's <laughs> the debate that's been foisted on us. So uh, it says, but Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Joseph did not sleep with her, have sexual relations, until Jesus was born. That's what it says. That's Matthew 125. Jesus had brothers and sisters. There's a bunch of verses right there. Uh, I'm not going to read them off, but uh, and it names them as well in one of those verses. Galatians 119, James was Jesus' brother. That's what it says. 
He wrote the book of James, by the way. He's the one who led the church in Jerusalem. Uh, and also sex within marriage does not defile either person. Okay, sex outside of marriage does. There's nothing wrong with having sex in marriage. Doesn't make you unclean or dirty or defile you in any way. That's just, uh, it's, it's a disservice to marriage. It's a dishonor to marriage to say that. God commands us to do it in marriage. Don't withhold yourselves. All right. <clears throat> All right. So the Mass and Eucharist, ooh, run out of time. Uh, so the Eucharist is the source and summit of the Christian life. That's from the Catholic Catechism. They consider this to be the pinnacle of their faith. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents or makes present the sacrifice of the cross. So they think that the, when they do the Eucharist and it turns into the body and blood of Jesus, they say that they offer it to God. That's what the, one of the words that the priest says. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's like an offering for sin, basically, because they're offering Jesus again every time they do the Mass. And then you consume it, just like you do in the Old Testament law. You offer your sacrifice, you, you kill it, the priest does it, they do their ritual, and then you consume it. That's what they think that they're doing. Um, and we call our church services, we call our meetings church services, by the way. Uh, the predominant activity that is performed during these services is the preaching of the word of God. That is why you come into our, why when you come into our sanctuary, there is a podium or a lectern right in the middle of, of the stage because it's the most important part of the service, the preaching of the word of God. But notice that there is no altar anywhere on the stage at all. Uh, but if you go to a Catholic building, the thing that's right there front and center is an altar. Okay, and altars where you make sacrifices to God, we don't need to make sacrifices anymore. So there's no altar in our church. Uh, oh, the last, last bigger one. Uh, the sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Eucharist are one single sacrifice. The victim is one and the same. The same now offers through the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross. Only, uh, only the manner of offering is different. And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. So they're saying the same way that Jesus died on the cross, bloodily, when we do this, when we practice communion and then the, the elements are changed, we're sacrificing Jesus again. Just we're doing it in an unbloody way is the way they, the way they put it. Um, the majority of their time is spent during the Mass on the Eucharist, uh, where the majority of our time is spent on preaching. Uh, and I, by the way, I don't have a problem with calling it either communion or the Eucharist. Uh, communion is just meanings because we're doing it all together. That's a good way to put it. The Eucharist just comes from the Greek word Eucharist, Eucharizo, which just means to give thanks. So which certainly communion is, when you're doing communion, it's a good time to give thanks to God. Amen? So... I don't have a problem with calling it the communion. I have a problem with what they say is happening during communion. Uh, and by the way, this is also why the Catholics use a crucifix in their church building and not a cross. Okay, it's because they think that Jesus is being offered again as if he's on the cross every time they do it. So that's why above the altar, there's always a cross with a, the, a sculpture of Jesus on it or our cross is empty, they have Jesus on it because they're doing it over and over and over again. Uh, 
the Council of Trent summarizes, this is from the Catechism again, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly his, his body that he was offering under the species of bread, it has always been the conviction of the Church of God. That's not true. Uh, and this Holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of the bread and wine, uh, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ, our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. This change the Holy Catholic Church has fittingly and properly called transubstantiation. Uh, that's hard to understand, but basically they think that the bread and the wine on the altar, when they're sacrificed, are they're transformed in their substance into the actual body and blood of Jesus while remaining in their accidents, bread and wine. And if that did clear it up for you, um, so the Middle Ages or the medieval period saw a, uh, a, a resurgence of Aristotelian thought and philosophy where the Platonic version had dominated for the previous you know, 10, 11 centuries. And Aristotle thought of the world in these ways, in this way. So he said that there are substances in which those are eternal, invisible qualities of something, like human being, right? There's a quality there that you just always have, where an accident is the exterior physical qualities, like your fingers, your hair, your feet of a person, etc. That's what they say. Um... Oh, this is a side note again. Sorry. Uh, have you guys ever heard the phrase hocus pocus? Right? Well, it's actually it's the night before Halloween, so good time to bring it up. Didn't plan that. But, uh, it's a phrase that's commonly used by magicians when they turn something into something else. Okay, well, this phrase actually has its origins in the Catholic Mass uh, because one of the rituals that they have to say during the tr this transubstantiation process is this is my body in English. Well, in Latin, which the way it was said, was hocus corpus meum. So as people knew Latin less and less and less, and they, can, they were stubbornly continuing to do their services in Latin, people just heard hocus pocus, like hocus, uh, hocus corpus meum, and they didn't know what it meant. And they just thought it was a magical word that they were saying. So they weren't looking at it as like a spiritual ritual, but as like a magical thing that the priest can do. And then magicians pick that up and it's still being used to this day. So just, just some confusion there. That's kind of funny. All right. So Catholics say that after the priests say a prayer, prayer of consecration, the bread and wine on the altar are transformed in their substance. All right. That's called transubstantiation. Uh, this, this language is developed by Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century. He was the guy who he made Aristotle great again. So he's the guy who read Aristotle, loved him, and he used his philosophy all the time in his theology, and it became popular for a while. So, so you have him to thank for that. Uh, and he came up with the idea of substance and accidents from Plato. So, so the, while in the substance, so the invisible qualities that you can't tell, it is actual, it's actually Jesus' flesh even though the external appearances are uh, still bread and wine. So uh, this is, I mean, I, I think this is absurd, okay? So the Christian faith is not a blind faith. There, there is substance behind it. Like there's real arguments, there's real evidence, there's real weight, 
Okay, nowhere, and I mean nowhere, do we see in scripture any miracle that is performed that is not recognizable to everybody. We're never asked to suspend our, our senses and just believe that something happened when it's not visible to us, ever. Okay, imagine if Jesus said to a blind man, the substance of your eyes has changed to be healed and working, never mind that the accident of your eyes has not changed and you still can't see. Okay, so uh, reality check, your exterior appearance is always reflected by what your substance is. Okay, when I'm a child, I have the substance of a human being and thus reflect the traits that all humans have externally. However, I also possess the substance of what it means to be a child. My substance changes over time to that of an adult. And guess what? My substance changes. As my substance changes, so does my accidents. Okay, and then my external appearance. So if the substance of the bread and wine were miraculously changed, then the accidents would reflect that change. External experience of the bread and the wine do not change because the substance did not change at all. Okay, and as a side note, I don't believe in accidents and substances, okay? I certainly don't see this represented anywhere in scripture, and I don't think it's a viable worldview that we should hold to. I'm simply trying to use their own logic against them. So, the theology of transubstantiation is nothing more than a bad attempt to explain with what you can see plainly with your own eyes and taste with your own mouth is not really real. I'll skip that part. All right, three more slides. Uh, worship of the Eucharist, okay? In the liturg liturgy of the mass, we express our faith in the real presence of Christ under the species of bread and wine by among other ways, genuflecting or bowing deeply as a sign of adoration of the Lord. The Catholic Church has always offered and still offers to the sacrament of the Eucharist, the cult of adoration, not only during mass, but also outside of it, receiving the consecrated hosts with the utmost care, exposing them to the solemn veneration of the faithful and carrying them in procession. So they worship the bread. That's what it means. They bow down to it and they pray to it. And I'm not kidding. Uh, by the way, personal testimony, I, when I was still trying to be a Catholic, this was between my junior and senior year of college, I was asked to chaperone a conference to, that, for the Steubenville retreat, which is a Catholic youth retreat that they put on every year. Um, so I agreed to do, to do it. And I went and while there, they did this. So they took, they did the mass. They supposedly transformed it into the actual body of Jesus. They put that bread into like a golden chalice, like so it was elevated. And then the priest literally took it up and like waved it, like took it like this and waved it across the room. And people like were falling over. It was like at a Benny Hinn meeting. I'm not, I'm not making this up. Like people were weeping and they were crying and he took it and he marched through the, the gymnasium because it was like a big, big room, big gym, and was like pushing it in people's faces, and they were falling over and crying and weeping, like, like I mean, it was like I was at a Benahin meeting, and I was just stunned by this. So I'm sitting there in my stadium, and people are falling over around me. I'm just sitting there, <laughs> like horrified silence. Okay, uh, and I was like, oh my word, they literally believe that is Jesus. And then it, they put it back on the altar and people literally went up and bowed down to it. Literally bowed down to it. Uh, and they were, did this for hours and hours. So, and they do this at churches all over the place. All, all Catholic churches do this at some point. They call it Eucharistic adoration. Some of them even have perpetual Eucharistic adoration if the church is big enough where they have a host there that you can go sit in the presence of and bow down and worship forever, like 24 seven, it's always available for you. And only if the church is big enough, otherwise they rotate it. Like they have, 
like this church will do it for a day, the next church will do it for a day, so that the communities can all participate in this. That's just straight up idol idolatry there. Like, no varnish. Uh, the fact that they want to say that Jesus died over and over again, uh, well, the scripture disagrees with that. It says in Hebrews 9 that he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the goat, blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing our eternal redemption. Jesus died once and secured our salvation. That's it, eternally, one time. First uh, Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that's Jesus for us, that he might uh, bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, being made alive in the spirit. Communion is meant to be a memorial. Okay? It replaces the Jewish Passover. The Passover was a symbolic meal, meal that served as a reminder of God's deliverance. Just two examples, bitter herbs were, you had to eat them during the Passover. The Bible says that was meant to represent their slavery. Uh, they had to eat unleavened bread. Why? It was because it showed that they had to leave in a hurry because they didn't have time to wait for the bread to rise. There's a whole bunch of different things that they had to do uh, for very specific reasons. This replaces that. Okay, community is the same, same thing. Jesus said, this is my body, which is given for, for me, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Passover service was a memorial service. So was communion. Jesus is not saying that when you do this, the bread and the wine are literally going to become my body and blood. Or my, my body, yeah, my body and blood. All right? It's, this is there. By the way, none of the disciples objected to this language. Eating blood and human flesh is forbidden under the law. Uh, the Jews, like these guys were Jews, they would have known that. They, they, object, they did not object, okay? They obviously understood that Jesus was speaking metaphorically or like as a, you know, uh, figuratively. Also, later on, Peter is, is, uh, tells the Lord in this vision, I've never had any blood, never done it before. So he obviously didn't think that he had had human blood, right, when he did this communion service. So, all right, but that's that. Any questions? I had to, I had to go fast there. It seems that a Catholic priest would be pretty powerful, but they could control the transformation of bread and wine into the actual body of Christ. Correct. So you have to have a holy orders in order to do it. Um, that's a sacrament. And uh, you have to say it exactly right. Like there is an exact phrase that you have to say. And if you get it wrong by one word, uh, there's, so there's two things that could happen if you get it wrong. Uh, if, you, if your word doesn't change the meaning of what you're saying, then you've only committed a grave mortal sin and you need to go to confession for it as a priest. But if you did say something that changed the meaning, then it didn't transform. It's still just bread and wine and nobody got grace for your service because you screwed up. And then you also committed a mortal sin. So, uh, so it has to be perfect. And they have, like, there's the Latin phrase is the one that you have to use. And then they have authorized translations for every language that you have to use. So, so they, they kind of have the power, but it's not really them. It's just that they're the ones who are authorized to do it, I guess. Does that <laughs> clarify anything for you? Any other questions? 
All right. So next week, uh, we're going to do progressive Christians. Uh, so we're going to be done with Catholics. Uh, but if you have any uh, questions or something that you thought of about not just Catholics, but Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses, and you want me to cover something in more detail, if there's something you know about that I didn't cover because I couldn't cover everything, let me know. Because uh, we have two more classes, and I'm not sure if I want to break one of the next two up into two sessions or if we just want to do like a Q&A and just wrap up things that you guys want more clarification on at the end. So if you have something, let me know. Um, I'll go back to the beginning for my contact information. So uh, otherwise, let's pray and we'll end this. So uh, God, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you have indeed saved us and that it is by your grace that we have been saved and we thank you that we do have people that we can look to in our, uh, for great deeds in our faith. Not just those in scripture, but those who have come afterwards. That we can look to people like Augustine and Mary, Athanasius, etc. as good godly people uh, to emulate their faith. Help us to do that and to um, consider our manner of life. And we thank you that we do get to celebrate and remember the sacrifice that you made for us in communion that we practice here at this church. And we pray that you would bring, uh, or that you would open eyes for Catholics that we know that are in each of our lives, that they would see uh, your truth on these issues and that they would come to know you and accept the authority that uh, you have placed in your word. In Jesus' name, amen.